Hello, and welcome back. Today for episode 20, I'm joined by David Gill from Fauna and Flora International, who's speaking with us about their Saiga Antelope Conservation Project operating throughout Central Asia. David tells us about the past rocky decades the Saiga has experienced during the times of the Soviet Union, and how the species almost became extinct following its, the crash in the early 90s. He talks about the animal's incredible fecundity, unique ecology, and peculiar features, as well as the incredible comeback it's made in the past few years. If you like this episode and like to follow more of this project, please follow the links in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode on Restore Planet Podcast. Today I'm joined by David Gill from Fauna and Flora International. So we're going to be talking to us a little bit about Saiga. So David, kick things off, you mind telling us a little bit about your background and how you got uh, involved in this work? Yeah, uh, happy to. Um, I, I'm a zoologist by original training. Um, I, I like a lot of people in conservation, like various bits and bobs of experience at the start. Um, in Paraguay, I had a few months studying amphibians and forest there. Uh, but probably my most, my first sort of meaningful conservation experience was in uh, Central Africa in a country called Equatorial Guinea. Um, worked for the Zoological Society in London. Um, looking at bushmeat trade and the drivers of that. And that was a really formative experience for me in seeing the sort of the role of people in conservation as well. Really changed change my mindset from a sort of more of an idealist zoologist at that time. And then from then, worked at FFI for the last 10 years. FFI's Fauna and Flora Internationals, uh, the, the world's oldest international conservation NGO based in the UK. Uh, but operating across 40 countries, been doing a variety of projects on that time, a lot of plant and tree projects, but over the last three years, focused in Central Asia, and including the, the Saiga antelope, which I believe we'll talk about today. Yes, that's a nice, uh, nice little segue. So yeah, it's quite cool. Tell us about the Saiga and what's going on there. Right, well, Saiga, uh, where do we begin? Um, Maybe just I a little bit of sort of ecology, sort of its behaviour, before we start bringing in the horrible human influence yeah, okay. and all these terrible things. Let's start a little bit with, you know, what is the animal, what's its kind of life cycle, where, where does it live, uh, its behaviour, that sort of thing. Lovely. Okay. Well, yeah, so I mean, I imagine a lot of uh, your listeners may, may or may not have heard of Saiga as a, as a species, but it is an antelope. Um, it is... And it's basically found across Central Asia. It used to have a much wider range, but you, there's five populations remaining. There's one in Mongolia. Um, there's one in an area of Russia called Kalmykia. And then there's three in Kazakhstan. And one of those crosses the border down to Uzbekistan. Um, and if you're trying to picture, if you're trying to picture that in your mind, what that looks like, it's vast steppe landscapes so or sort of the, the kind of, just going between short grassland to desert landscape, uh, vast areas, huge areas of land, plains, I suppose is another, another word that might be more familiar to some listeners. Um, and if you, want a, if you want an analogy, you could think of them as a Central Asian wildebeest in a way. They um, move, they move in large numbers um, and they have vast migration routes as well. So they travel up and down these plains across international borders of, for reasons we'll discuss later, that's becoming more difficult for them. Um, uh, in search of the best grass and things to eat, you can imagine the, the climate there is, is harsh. Um, it gets down to sort of minus 30, minus 40 in the winters and 30, 40 plus in the summertime. It's a harsh environment. Um, and 
that can make a big difference to survival and health of the species. So they need to follow to find the right places to get good forage and to drink, etc. Um, they, I don't know, anything more in ecology? Yeah, I mean, more sort of um, their biology. Really. So tell us a little bit about their sort of very iconic nostrils and right, the purpose okay, behind, yeah, yeah. Uh, behind those. <laughs> yeah, so to picture a saiga, I mean, hopefully, maybe some of you are Googling this at the same time to have a look at what they look like. They're one of the most unusual species look like they've got this fantastic face this sort of long slightly shriveled spongy snout um star wars creatures come to mind um the the males of the species have two beautiful horns um which um are highly traded and we'll talk about that later too in terms of what that means for the species conservation um and they they also breed pretty quickly it's another interesting thing that we'll talk about later this amazing capacity of the species to increase in number when it has to they the females have twins um often um and the, the species can kind of grow in number quite quickly too all right okay so take us back a little bit perhaps you know maybe it's the last century or however long how has human you know influence and impacts and population growth and you know, need for resources and expansion, that kind of thing. How has that affected the life cycle and the you know, the overall sort of ecology? And the yeah, it's amazing. and it's interesting where where you can start. You can start that story at various points in time, but I suppose if you were to go back more than a hundred years, um, you're talking millions of of saiga. I don't know if anybody knows the exact number, but there were a vast herds. Um, Possibly, possibly several million, um, like imagine wildebeest herds basically across Central Asia. The, there was, I'm going to have to try and get my dates right here, but there was an initial large scale decline earlier in the 20th century uh, where Saiga were really hit quite heavily by mass hunting. Um, and later on, during the formation of the Soviet Union, there was a recovery and there was actually very good hunting management systems in place during the Soviet Union era and Saiga uh, were managed managed quite well um, and the numbers were were in good shape. The big the next big decline happened on the, in the, after the fall of the Soviet Union um, and the protection and management that was sort of keeping Saiga safe uh, disappeared very very quickly almost effectively overnight that protection was no longer in place. That happened at the same time as demand for the horns that I was talking about earlier. So the males have these two beautiful horns and they've long been used in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, demand for that skyrocketed at the same time. So over the, the late 90s to early 2000s, uh, there was this huge crash in population. So estimated more than 90% of the species numbers disappeared in 10 year periods. So that's, that is one of the fastest declines for any animal species worldwide like it was really catastrophic um you know we, I, I think maybe I'll, I'll leave it there for now because there's another chapter in that story since then there have been some strong recoveries there's been some other declines related to, to disease etc but there is an overall picture of the species doing quite well now which we'll touch on but it's really it was one of the fastest declines in any species worldwide well, I mean, would you mind telling us about that? What was that? Was that due to disease? Was it hunting? What was the drug? Yeah, okay. Oh, so, so, okay, so the, the earlier decline was principally hunting in the, in the late 90s, early, early noughties. Um, 
that was just uncontrolled hunting for the horn and it really the species really suffered from that so that was for the sorry that was for the horn that was for the trade was that yes yes of course that wasn't just for meats or something no that's that's what's caused this skyrocketing of of trade basically that's what made it unsustainable saiga is hunted for meat too and in the soviet times as part of that quite well managed sustainable trade uh, meats and hides was part of the reason for that trade uh, but what happened after that it was this huge demand for horn and oftentimes meat still is occasionally consumed from Saigon it still is of some value but it tends to be incidental it's not the main driver of why Saigon approached the main reason they approached is, is for the horn which reached huge values um, uh, and that's what drives it basically and is that for, is it, again, I sort of don't want to sort of cue the Chinese, but is that, for, is that for traditional Chinese medicine or is that for other local belief? Uh, it, yeah, it's mostly, um, it comes from different places in Southeast Asia. Uh, so China, Singapore, to some extent, Japan, Malaysia, there are various Asian countries there's a demand for that and there is a belief that Saigon has some medicinal properties, but yeah. not not within Kazakhstan, no, right. or the other countries. Oh, so it's completely from outside the demand. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And what effect does this have on locals? Do they have any sort of? Do they do they care? Is it their kind of sense of this? I mean, obviously, there's an emotional attachment, but do they? Does it affect their way of life at all? Um, I think it's fair. It, it probably varies. Um. You know, it's not, it's different. It's different. You talk about, if you have a podcast, you'll be talking about lots of different conservation topics. It's not the same as um, somebody losing their whole forest habitat and that, and all the direct impacts on their livelihoods, etc. cetera. Um, uh, for local people who are living in the Saiga ranges, um, poaching tends to be organized by outside groups. So there's an instability and insecurity that c- comes with that, that you have a legal people operating illegally coming into your villages etc to hunt saiga uh, is not generally um something you would want in your village um and then people's saiga yeah they got all that stuff comes with it people attitude, people's attitudes to saiga vary um I, I think some people are apathetic some people are, are in favor some people benefit economically when they're involved in poaching it, it, it totally varies yeah so they've obviously come under a number of threats you mentioned of course the hunting but also i think you alluded to the fact that you know you said that they've been roaming the, you know, the steps of asia yeah. from one end of the continent to another so have they also been put under um, territorial pressure as well are there certain ways that there's certain routes that they can no longer take or certain ways that they can no longer migrate and etc there have been, um, yeah, so there's on there's on, ongoing development in Central Asia, which affects saiga migration and affects other species too, like, well, like we know everywhere around the world, so new roads, uh, new railways, um, certain infrastructure developments as well. Uh, so there are on, on, ongoing threats. A couple of big examples um, include, so for example, one of the populations in Kazakhstan migrates down to Uzbekistan. Um, there is a border fence being put in place there, which had stopped the route. 
uh, and also a railway line a couple hundred miles north of that, which provided a further barrier. Um, so that's really affected cycle migration, and you can see it. So our partner in Kazakhstan, who we do we do all of our work with, is a local organization called ACBK, fitted satellite collars on the Saiga. So you can you can really see it very starkly. You can see the movement on a map of it going back and forth every year, and then one year suddenly it stops at that point. Um, there are mitigation measures put in place to reduce that impact. So in the border fence, uh, the government um, agreed to make holes in certain areas along the bare fence for the saiga to be able to get through. Um, the railway line also has ramps coming up to it to allow saiga to pass, but that's largely been ineffective so far. So that remains to be a significant barrier for saiga migration. All right, okay. Dave, would you give me one second? I'm just going to pause recording just a moment. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for everyone listening. We just had a little bit of a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A little bit of some noise in the background going on. Anyway, so, David, back to you. So tell us a little bit now um, about the project that you've been working on. What's been, uh, what have FFI been up to? Right, well, okay. So it's it's what FFI and what a lot of other people have, have been up to, actually. So for Saiga one of the amazing i think for many of the many conservation projects worldwide saiga is a lovely example of where a group of organizations have really banded together for a species and work really effectively actually um maybe to take a slight backtrack on, on just ffi but back in 2005 a memorandum of understanding so an agreement was set up between this all the saiga range states so the governments of each countries came together supported by NGOs as well, um, working on Saiga conservation. And they developed an MOU basically stating their intentions to, to recover Saiga. So we're talking about this is at the point when Saiga were at, at a real low. And the, on these governments since then have increasingly committed resources to protect Saiga. And every five years they have a meeting and develop a new action plan. Like this is what we're going to do for the next five years together. And it's been really effective. There's an organization called the Saiga Conservation Alliance as well, which is an NGO-based uh, headquartered in Oxford in the UK, which also helps to ensure good communication and cooperation between Saiga NGOs. Um, FFI is one of the other major NGOs working directly on its conservation on the ground. Brilliant. Um, and just yeah. to give people a little bit of perspective, so in the early 90s, before they you know, yeah. experienced a catastrophic decline, the numbers are up in sort of, I don't know exactly, but sort of, Numbers of millions. Mm. And I think in 2016, 2017, they went down to about 130,000. I think I've got that about yeah. right. So there's a couple. Of, okay, there's, there's Saiga story in terms of numbers. It's so hard to describe because there's so many different right. ups and downs right. way. But you're right. Okay, so early 2000s, massive crash due to poaching. Saiga world comes together, develops really good conservation plans. And then you see it start to increase actually, and it's getting going up and up and up and up and up. Um, and the wedges are working. But then one day, and uh, now I think this is 2015, uh, there's a mass uh, disease outbreak for Saiga, and they lose something like 80% of their population. Overnight is probably exaggerating a bit, but it pretty much in a matter of days and weeks, they, there's a huge death. So it's this critical moment again for Saiga conservation community where and what was the disease um it's hmm. 
I'm not going to try. <laughs> That's okay. No, sorry, don't worry. Sorry, sorry to put you on the spot. I know they, they, they experience a number of diseases, don't they? Especially mm. when their numbers decrease to such a small level, then you've got threats of, you know, a limited gene pool, which leaves them vulnerable to all kinds, yeah. of, all kinds of things. Um, well, something that's obviously quite apparent through the conversation we've having is these animals have been quite difficult to track generally because it's such a vast area, so many vast numbers that often it's a little bit difficult to, to understand exactly what's going on. But my yeah. understanding is that the work you've been doing is really kind of you know, bringing all these fantastic groups of people together, very knowledgeable, and essentially, so tell us a little bit about kind of the stages. So you're saying about, you know, you're bringing in these organisations. What exactly was going on on the ground? So now tell us about the work with local communities um, in these in these areas and what they've been up to and their impacts. Right, okay. Um, so psycho conservation work on the ground, um, so it's principally led by the government in each of these countries. So there's um, the, the first the first thing that needed to be put in place was improved monitoring and protection of the species, basically, the very sort of <laughs> straightforward conservation work. This, the species was being hunted at a rate that wasn't sustainable. Um, and that's vastly improved across all Saiga range state countries. Um, you have to understand the challenge of protecting Saiga in that, as we've described before, they they really do move around vast landscapes. So the, the, the monitoring and anti-poaching teams have an incredibly tough job to do so. So one, one monitoring team we work with, for example, uh, with our partner in Kazakhstan, ATBK, they, they have a monitoring team that tracks Saiga. Um, they, they're a team of four and they operate in two cars um, and they track an area the size of Scotland every year, basically, to, to try and follow Saiga. So it's, that's one team, right? Can you imagine yourself in that position being in a car? Like, where do you start? How do we, how do we make sure that we have good data on Saiga? How do we know where they all are? How, do, how can we stay ahead of poaching? How do we understand how poaching works? It's, it's a big challenge. So part of the work has been to, to do everything you can to support those teams uh, in terms of um, them having good working conditions and having all the right equipment and uniforms, et cetera. Um, in terms of having the technology to improve their work. So giving them access to satellite collars, um, increasingly drones recently have been super effective. So we're using drones now, so you can actually get a head start on where Saigo are in the landscapes, so you know where to do your patrolling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also using technologies um, such as SMART, which I imagine probably some, other, some of your other podcasts uh, that's the acronym SMART, isn't it? Yeah, so SMART is uh, it's a tool, basically. It's a tool which people use to improve patrols, ranger patrols. So you can imagine rangers going out every day of cross vast landscapes, and how do you know it's effective, basically? So SMART is basically you map out where your patrol teams are going across the landscape, you collect data on what they're seeing and what they're finding. So how often are they seeing Saiga, for example? How often are they seeing poaching incidences? How often are they seeing other wildlife? And you use the information over time to build a picture, which tells you we need to be spending more, we're, going, we're patrolling in the wrong places actually. Next month we need to go here, here and here because our past data tells us a story that says that poaching is more likely to be here basically. So using all of those technologies together, it's just increasingly improving the effectiveness of patrolling over time. All right. And that's good news with this story. Mm. Um, so tell us how not the numbers have bounced back. And obviously there's multiple reasons why. I'd really like to focus on the fecundity. 
Yeah. And it's basically these they, they breed like rabbits, as they say, or like tigers. People yeah, like tigers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, they, they tend to they have twins very often, um, which helps. So you just do the numbers. I guess there's a set of twins every year that, um, and the females tend to be also have quite high reproductive success and so they bounce back quite quickly so that's always been the speed there's always been the card the species has had up its sleeve so it has as we've described before about various declines its face it's really not looked good for saiga at least two or three times in its history it was really going very fastly towards extinction but if conservation measures can be put in place to give it a chance it responds so quickly um and that's the amazing thing. So what do we see now? We're seeing the numbers, the latest number suggests in Kazakhstan alone, and that's where the best data is right now, there's over 840,000 Saiga. Um, that's based on last year's aerial surveys. Uh, the team are actually, so our partner ACBK in partnership with the government is anytime now will be uh, flying around Kazakhstan again to do the next round of aerial surveys to be getting updated figures uh, on how many there are. But that's a huge increase. Um, we're sort of getting now to the sort of numbers that there were back in the, in, in the good days, almost. So it's, it's looking good. That's over such a, so what, five years, more or less? Yeah, it's amazing. So there's sort of the, the, the population over the last five years has been sort of growing by almost a sort of sort of 30 to 40 percent every year and that's sort of really really pushing it up in the right direction um there's nuance in there there's different saiga populations and different populations are increasing at different levels so certainly none of them are safe um there's as the flip side of how well saiga conservation goes up it can also go down very quickly we know there's disease threats will happen again at some point and the, the key is to build the strength for those populations so they can be resilient to that threat and um, poaching also can increase at any point as well the, the protection in place now for saiga is, is quite good but if it were to decrease again then the saiga would suffer and also poaching is also becoming more sophisticated over time as well so people poaching saiga are increasingly using night vision goggles they're using better vehicles, vehicles, they use snowmobiles to travel in, in, in the winter when our ranger teams can't go out, etc. So there is an ongoing threat which needs to be managed. But despite that, the overall picture generally is the psycho populations are doing well. Fantastic. And, and what can you, oh, I can't predict, but what, what would you like to see over the next five to ten years? Um, what would we like to see? Um, we'd like, so I think particularly, so of the five, Saiga populations, two are doing pretty well, and three, although recovering, are still inc incredibly small. There's about a few, a few thousand each. So if we, we'd love to see all five Saiga populations um, looking big and healthy. Um, I think you'd like to see um, that, that connectivity of their habitat both maintained but also restored in key places. I mean, one of the one of the things one of the reasons a lot of us, I think, can resonate with saiga conservation is not just a kind of weird, lovely animal, which we, we love, but it's also this idea of them migrating. I think that's quite powerful. It's like this idea that there are still wild landscapes out there, which there, there really are in Central Asia, and that there's a, an old species like a saiga doing its thing of migrating hundreds of miles backwards and forwards. I think that's, that's a powerful idea. So we certainly like that still happens, but it is at risk in certain places and on the 
between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan has not really been functioning over the last few years. So to see that happen again would be a beautiful thing. I think also there's more work to be done in terms of bringing local people in, into psychic conservation. There is a, a huge amount has been done. There's been some wonderful work on uh, community engagement uh, and environmental education. Um, there's been some innovative development projects that, that we've also been involved in in, in southern Kazakhstan too. Uh, but there's much, much more to be done. I think a large emphasis in psychic conservation has been on its management and protection because it was in such a bad way and because poaching was so obviously the principal threat. But to save the species, the, the, a lot of the investment has gone into ensuring that its protection was in place. But now that that's looking better, and as long as that continues to be maintained and enhanced, I think also at the same time, I think more can be done to strengthen links with local communities inside your conservation areas and, and make them feel really part of the same success as well. Fantastic. All right, David, well, where can people follow your work and find out more about the project? So, so many places. Uh, <laughs> um, I, so we're part in, in Kazakhstan for Saiga. We're part of a big partnership actually called the Altindala Conservation Initiative. Um, and I'd love people to look up Altindala and find them on Twitter and social media because that's where our work, but also all of our work of our other partners in Kazakhstan is, is promoted. Um, and also I would look up Saiga Conservation Alliance as well. If you want to see an organization which is representing and pushing Saiga conservation forward across all the countries where it's found. I, I've largely been talking about our work in Kazakhstan today, and that's, that's where most of the world Saiga are found, but love great work in Russia and Mongolia and Uzbekistan too, which needs to be celebrated as well. Fantastic. David, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jack. Nice to talk to you.